Hello and welcome to the Double Double. My name is David Dixon and it is Monday, June 8th here in New York City. Hope everyone is staying safe. They're doing well and are healthy as we continue to confront the coronavirus pandemic. Coming up on today's podcast is an interview I recorded earlier today with the head men's basketball coach at McAllister College in Minnesota, Coach Abe Woldis Lassie. Uh, McAllister College is on the rise the, in the three years uh, before Coach Woldis Lassie took over. The, the program had won 16 games combined in the last two years. They have won 15 games combined. They are on the come up. They're on the rise in the Mayak Conference out in Minnesota. So uh, I had a really good conversation with him, really interesting, and I'm, and I'm hoping you guys enjoy it. Uh, but, uh, but before we get to uh, the podcast, I just want to say that to everyone out there who is protesting, not just in my own home city of New York, but all around the country and all around the globe, uh, I just really want to thank you. Uh, the protest these last two weeks and the awareness that it has brought to the issue of police, police brutality has already brought about the process of change. New York City today voted to officially ban chokeholds by police officers, making it a felony crime, something that should have been in place a long, long time ago. And especially uh, after the death of Eric Gardner in 2014. And it is because of these protests that people began to learn of these faults in our in our criminal justice system, that something like a chokehold by a police officer wasn't illegal, that uh that people got that knowledge and that they began with these protests by demanding and making your voice heard that the city and local governments whose duty it is to represent their constituent views on these issues can bring about that change. So I just want to thank everyone who is out there protesting these last two weeks and everyone who is continuing to protest as without all of you, these small baby steps, but important baby steps towards progress would not have been possible. I have two videos uh, as a part of Recommendation Corner this week. The first is this past week's episode of Last Week Tonight, which is the HBO show hosted by John Oliver. It breaks down in great detail uh, on how we got to this point uh, with police in, in our country, what the obstacles to reform have been, and kind of what we can do going forward. I learned a lot by watching it. It is available on YouTube, and I highly recommend anyone who is, again, interested in learning more about these issues and understanding some of the terms uh, being thrown out there and discussed, like defunding the police or qualified immunity. Uh, This episode helped me uh, improve my understanding of just what those terms and what those those concepts and ideas really mean uh, as they're being talked about uh, a lot out there right now. And the second, it's a short 30-minute uh, TV, I think it was like a special, that ESPN's The Undefeated put together and released. Uh, it details two NBA teams, the Bucks and the Kings, who both made uh, a trip to a prison in their respective cities the, uh, this past season. And I found this to just be incredibly powerful and really moving to hear the stories of the inmates, many of whom... Uh, were spending or have spent a a substantial portion of their lives in jail. So uh, I highly, highly recommend uh, checking those those out. I'm sure, uh, as I mentioned, both of them are on YouTube or on Twitter. So 
check those out. Uh, I highly rec- recommend them. So uh, I'm going to hit the music. And when we come back is my interview recorded earlier today with the head men's basketball coach at McAllister College, Abe Woldis-Lassie. Joining me today on the Double Double is a special guest, the head men's basketball coach at McAllister College, Abe Woldis-Lassie. As a college player at McAllister, he was a first-team All-MIAC player both his junior and senior years, leading the conference in assists both campaigns. He jump-started his coaching career right after graduation, joining the Impact Basketball Academy as an assistant in 2008. Coach Woldis Lassie rose to the college ranks in the summer of 2010, joining the staff at Bowdoin College as an assistant coach. After two years with the Polar Bears, he joined Dartmouth as the director of basketball operations for one year before going south to mid-major power Davidson in the same role, helping Davidson earn the school's first at-large NCAA bid in 2015. In the summer of 2016, he joined the staff at Siena College as an assistant coach, and after two years at Siena, Coach Woldis Lassie came back to his alma mater, becoming the head coach at McAllister in the summer of 2018. In his two years at the helm, he has helped guide the team to 15 wins in the competitive MIAC conference. I'm thrilled he's taking the time to join me today. Coach, how's it going? Man, that's a heck of an introduction. I really uh, I really appreciate it. It's great to be with you today. And uh, yeah, just uh, thanks so much for having me on. For sure. So, so, Coach, before we get to the basketball portion of the interview, uh, I just want to ask you about the recent events these, these last few weeks. You tweeted out on May 29th that you grew up less than two miles from the site where George Floyd was murdered by a police officer almost two weeks ago. As a person of color who grew up in the Minneapolis area, just what's your reaction to the events of these last few weeks? Yeah, thanks, David. Uh, I would say that it's definitely been a painful time. And I think if you're a a, a decent human being, whether you're from here or not, I think that it, it should affect you in a certain way. And, uh, and it's been hard, you know, again, like this, this is home for me and I'm, I'm so proud to be from here. And, uh, you know, Larry Fitzgerald is a, a wide receiver for the Arizona Cardinals. He just came out with a, a piece in the New York times yesterday. And he talked about how, you know, he, he doesn't even recognize this Minneapolis and, and he actually is a few years older than me. We, we actually crossed paths in high school for a year and, and I was reading that and I, and I felt a lot of the same things he felt. Um, and I think people at home or, you know, across the country and even across the world are seeing these images uh, via Twitter or, you know, on cable news. And um, it, it's hard to see, but um, you hope that there can be some positive change that comes from it. You know, we, we actually had a, a big clothing and donation drive on Saturday that brought together a lot of athletes. And, um, so it, it's definitely been a painful time, but, but I'm an optimist. And, mm-hmm. and I think that uh, things, things will hopefully change for the better here. How are you talking about some of these issues and just these events with uh, with the guys on your team? You know, with the pandemic, no one's. It's it's not like you're all really together on campus. We're all scattered around the country and, and the world. So, just how are you uh, talking about these issues with the guys in in your program? Yeah. So, in the McAllister College mission statement, uh, the last three words in our mission statement are service to society, and we've talked about how. Um, and, you know, I know you, you obviously went to Wesleyan and I'm at McAllister. We're at some really, really nice schools, um, high academic. Uh, you know, we're, we're building our basketball program. But uh, my job as a coach is to get them ready for life after basketball. So, you know, all of our guys are going to play here for four years. And, you know, maybe a, a few will get a chance to play overseas. Uh, but at the end of the day, they're going to be 
husbands and fathers and really strong citizens in their community. And part of being a, a part of a community is using your voice for good and trying to help those um, who are maybe less fortunate and, right, and maybe didn't have the same advantages that, that I certainly have as a coach mm-hmm. and, and that they have as athletes. So um, we, we, we kind of I've texted a lot with guys. You know, we, we, we actually have one current player on our team from Minnesota. And so, like you mentioned, a lot of the guys are, are back home with their families. Um, but we, we've had one Zoom session. Uh, I actually just had, had a Zoom session with our incoming first years yesterday. And, you, you know, David, no one has – there's no easy answer. There's no easy fix or else we already mm-hmm. have it. Right. But I think continuing to talk about it and continuing to – you know, what I've challenged people, people I've talked with is whatever – your comfort zone is like whatever you and I have been doing, we all have to step outside of that and we all have to do a little more. And, um, that, that's been a challenge for, for the guys on our team. Yeah, for sure. That's, I, I think that that's kind of what we need to, to move forward is we, we need to have and embrace those, these, these just really uncomfortable, uh, conversations. It's, that's how we can, uh, achieve growth and, and just improve society as a whole. So coach, I just want to thank you for, for those words and just kind of your perspective on these, uh, more important topics and issues than than just basketball, but but I want to transition here to basketball. Uh, obviously, we I, I mentioned you grew up in Minneapolis. Just uh, when you were growing up, uh, how did you get involved with uh, basketball, and just how did you fall in love with the game? Well, David, I'll tell you, my, the first team I ever played on, I was in second grade, and it was actually there was no second grade team, so it was it was a third and fourth grade kind of combined team, and I was the I think I was the only second grader, but without a doubt, I was the worst player on the team, and it wasn't even close. I was really bad, and I got a little better, and I got a little better, and um, I was actually a, a much better soccer player. I loved soccer, and just naturally, I think, was, was better, but uh, like most coaches who are coaching today, I just I really fell in love with the game, and it, um, it connected me with so many different people, uh, all different colors, different religions different backgrounds and um it just it gave me a lot of confidence and you know I grew up not having a hoop in my backyard we we didn't have a hoop till I was 16 then we ended up moving houses but there was a a kid who lived about halfway down the block and he had a hoop and he didn't use it much so I just asked his parents if I could use it and they said yes and so I'd come home from school and do a little homework and get some food and then I'd just go shoot at their hoop and um, I did that for a lot of years <laughs> and, and in Minnesota, like you said, you know, I grew up here, I'm born and raised and, you know, Minnesota winters are, are cold. Yeah. We tell recruits that from the jump. I don't even, we don't lie about it. It's just, <laughs> it, it gets really cold here. But, um, part of that was, you know, I would go and shovel their driveway and, and then I'd go shoot. So, um, I just, I love the game. Uh, again, it, it, it allowed me to connect with so many different people and even you and I talking today. Um, you know, without basketball, we might not be, but, um, but yeah, started out first year was in a, was in second grade. So, so what was your recruiting process like in high school? Did, did you continue playing multiple sports in high school and just kind of, how did you end up first choosing to go to St. Thomas? Yeah. So I, in high school, I went to a school, like I said, uh, Holy Angels, which is in Richfield, Minnesota. It's, it's the first suburb South. And, uh, again, like I, I mentioned Larry Fitzgerald, Larry was actually a, a senior at, uh, at Holy Angels when I was a freshman. He was an unbelievable football player and, mm-hmm. and really good athlete overall. But, um, but yeah, so I played soccer and basketball throughout high school. And then my, 
my senior year, I ended up transferring to St. Thomas Academy, which is uh, in Mendota Heights, just a, a suburb of St. Paul, and played both soccer and basketball there. And then, uh, again, I, I think I was probably naturally better at soccer, but spent a lot more time playing basketball and just enjoyed practice a lot more. And, um, and then ended up just playing basketball in college. Gotcha. So, so how did you end up choosing uh, St. Thomas to, to spend your first two years of, of college? So, you know, I think when I think of my story, I, I don't think, again, I I'm, I'm, wasn't the greatest athlete. I'm only 5'7". I was always mm. the shortest guy on the team. Uh, could never touch the rim. Um, was very limited athletically, but uh, I was really persistent. And um, I, I'd actually applied to a few of the our conferences, the MIAC, the Minnesota Intercollegiate Athletic Conference. And so I applied to a few of the schools in the conference. I, I knew I wanted to stay near home. Uh, I knew I wanted to play college basketball. Uh, I knew I wanted to be in a city. And so it, it kind of limited my search. Right. And uh, I, I'd actually applied to McAllister. I didn't get in, but I applied to three other schools, uh, including St. Thomas, and got into those three and then decided on St. Thomas uh, for two years and then uh, ultimately decided to transfer and uh, was at McAllister my final two years. So, so that kind of brings me to my next question. After two years at St. Thomas, you transferred to uh, – McAllister, as you mentioned, in the same conference, the the MIAC, and we see this a lot in uh, Division One football, where a lot of times coaches may prohibit players from transferring within the state or within the conference. Just what was it like for you to transfer within the conference and then to end up playing against uh, your former teammates and coach and just the the school that that you used to be at? Yeah, it, it's certainly something that's not uh, normal. It's not the normal trend. And granted, this was in 2006. So I, to be honest, I don't even remember what the rules were. I know <laughs> when you, when you went division three to division three, you were fine. Or if you ever, if you went D2 to D3 or D1 to D2, you could play right away. Uh, I don't remember there being a whole, I know some schools now and some coaches will block, uh, interconference transfers and things like that. But, um, I, I was actually at St. Thomas for two years, but I, I played JV. So mm-hmm. as you know, David, some, there are some division three schools that do have JV programs. Right. And so I ended up playing two years of JV at St. Thomas. And so when I transferred to McAllister, you know, there was no JV. There was only a varsity. And uh, their point guard had graduated, and they they really needed a point guard. And uh, like like I said earlier, ultimately, I wanted to go to McAllister. I I just didn't get in the first time. Mm -hmm. I ended up getting in as a transfer and then, yeah, started for two years. So it was, you know, not only are McAllister and St. Thomas in the same conference, but they're literally on the same block. So... (laughs) Um, so Summit Avenue is it, it connects McAllister and St. Thomas, so they're only about a mile apart. Wow! So I, I didn't have to go far, but it was ultimately the uh, the best move for me at the time, and um, it was home. You know, coming obviously going to McAllister and just having the chance to really play and contribute was uh, something I was looking for. So. Uh, was grateful for that opportunity. So, so kind of has as we've talked about, McAllister College is a terrific liberal arts uh, school, and and at schools like this, it's it's very very common for the students to have a wide ranging interest in their and pursue different uh, avenues for their professional careers, whether it's tech, finance, medicine, uh, entrepreneurship, consulting, a whole bunch of different fields. When did you know during your your time in college that you really wanted to be a basketball coach? You know, I thought in high school that, you know, which is hard to think, you know, I'm probably 14 or 15 years old. And 
like any kid, right, your, your first goal would probably be to be in the NBA. And I knew David Stern wasn't going to be calling my name when I graduated. <laughs> so I figured, well, it would be the next best thing. And again, I, I love the game. And it, it just, um, and I said confidence earlier and persistence, but it just, um, and it's almost hard to describe, but the, the ability to connect, I felt that um, the biggest impact I could have in my community was via basketball and, and the impact I could have on not only the student athletes I coach, but uh, just other people in, in both, again, Minneapolis and St. Paul. Um, I felt like coaching would give me that opportunity. So um, I can't pinpoint the exact time, yeah. but, but I would say early in high school. Okay. I knew that, that that was something I wanted to do. So you graduate from McAllister in 2008, and then you join the staff at the Impact Basketball Academy out in Las Vegas uh, that summer. Where when I was researching, uh, I learned that one of your responsibilities was to tr- was to help train the train guys who were preparing for the 2008 and 2009 NBA drafts. And in that role, from from what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're you're really just trying to help them get ready for the biggest job interviews. Uh, of their young lives in front of pro scouts. Just as a coach, what are you really doing uh, to help structure those workouts to prepare these guys uh, for that job interview? Yeah, so I, yeah, I graduated on a Saturday, and it was a beautiful graduation outdoors. Um, and then I, I ended up moving to Las Vegas on a Tuesday. I started working on a Wednesday, so I would not suggest anyone do that you can't have to graduate take some time off go to europe or go to asia or africa travel and then come back but again I, I just i was really passionate and i knew i wanted to get started and th- there was an opportunity there my uncle lived out there and you know i was definitely more in a supportive role like okay. that for summer so I, I came in almost like uh, a graduate assistant and so uh joe bunasar is the guy who, who runs impact basketball so he would he would run all of the workouts and then I would mostly help, uh, kind of support either, even if it's just rebounding or, um, even little things like just a guy needed to get to the hotel or to the airport, or he needed to, um, you know, I would actually make protein shakes. So we had this big <laughs> blender and we would have, for, you know, Kevin Garnett was training out there, uh, Tyron Lou at the time, mm-hmm. uh, Chauncey Billups and Rudy Gay and, uh, just a, a lot of uh, amazing players. Uh, Alan Anderson is actually from Minneapolis. And yeah. So um, it started out as more of like a graduate manager role. And then as the months kind of went on, it went more to like I was able to work out a few guys and some international pros. And uh, and then it ended up blossoming into that, the end of that summer. I got offered a, a full-time position to be an assistant coach with uh, with the prep program. Oh, so nice. um, it, was, uh, it was an amazing experience to be in Las Vegas, uh, especially in the summertime when you have the NBA summer league out there for sure. And you have all of these uh, coaches and scouts and general managers and agents and players. Uh, it, it really is, you know, I know you're in New York and, and MSG is the Mecca, but right. uh, I think Vegas in the summertime might be the Mecca of basketball. So 100% between all the AAU events out there, obviously, as you mentioned, yes. summer league, uh, USA basketball is, is out there. It's a, uh, it's a very it's it's a hotbed of talent uh, of basketball talent in in the summertime. So in the so in the summer of 2010, you know, you join the staff as an assistant at Bowdoin College in the NESCAC. Completely different weather than what you were experiencing out in uh, Las Vegas. But just for any listener who just may not know, 
Uh, I think everyone understands that when you're on a coaching staff, each uh, person on the staff has different responsibilities. But at the Division three level, what are some of the responsibilities that come with being an assistant coach uh, with the basketball program? So you, you do almost everything right because again, at the Division three level, you we don't have the budget of maybe a Division one program, and so we don't have three full time assistants and a director of ops and a video coordinator and GA. So you sort of do all of those things. So uh, from recruiting to scouting to practice planning uh, to video um, to shoot, sometimes you're driving the van to go to the game, <laughs> to, uh, ordering food to alumni relations and uh, working with admissions and uh, working with parents, uh, getting to know the community. I mean, you really just, and that's a big reason why, why I chose Bowdoin. You know, I, um, after I left Las Vegas, I, I knew you know, I had that prep school experience, but I really wanted to coach at the college level. And, uh, you know, I'd go anywhere in the country. And, um, you know, I, I was applying everywhere, kind of all levels, D1, D2, D3. And, you know, honestly, not hearing back from a lot of people. Yeah. And and then finally, uh, probably in early June, maybe middle of June, um, I ended up getting a, a call from Coach Gilbride. I, I'd applied for a position out there. And, um, and so it, it's funny how that works. You know, I, I ended up, in a span of maybe three months having no offers. And then in a span of a week, I was offered the position at Bowdoin and then one at a, a division two school in California. And so now you're, you're kind of deciding, well, yeah. do I move to California? Or do I move to Maine? And I chose to go to Maine. Right. right. And, um, and looking back on it, it was a amazing experience. And the, just the opportunity coach Gilbride gave me, I, I was able to coach in a tremendous league. I, I know you're really familiar with the NESCAC, but yep. Uh, but just to be able to meet other other coaches, you know, New England just uh, isn't the biggest area. And so you're just able to cover a lot of ground and meet a lot of people. And uh, it was, um, you know, looking back, I'm, I'm just so thankful I had that chance at Bowdoin. So as you mentioned, one of the responsibilities as a Division three assistant coach is recruiting. And during your time at Bowdoin, you had an awesome track record of recruiting and helping develop guys, including the two-time NESCAC Defensive Player of the Year in John John Swords, and perhaps just the best scorer in NESCAC history in 2015 NESCAC Player of the Year, Lucas Hausman. What did you see in those guys in high school and AAU uh, when you were recruiting them uh, to Bowdoin? Well, you know, with with those two guys in particular – so uh, John Swords was seven feet tall, right? <laughs> so very unique story. He he was a, a six seven hockey player as a freshman. Wow! Uh, at, at Lincoln Sudbury, and then grew to six nine and six ten, and and by the time he joined us, he was seven feet. And his uh, two older cousins both played lacrosse at Bowdoin, and and he was actually living with his aunt at the time, and just had a real strong, his, his sister actually, Carolyn Swords is in the, I think she's in the hall of fame at Boston college. I know she okay. played the WNBA. She was a, a tremendous player, but, uh, played, um, New York Liberty and played in Las Vegas and all that. But, uh, so John, uh, to be very honest, in a lot of ways, he, uh, he recruited himself to Bowdoin mm-hmm. and it was just a matter of making sure that it was the right fit for us in our program. But, um, again, he, with his size and, his agility, um, he was just a, a very special player, one that doesn't come around very often, especially in Division III. Yep. And um, with respect to Lucas Hausman, you know, saw him at um, an Ivy League camp, and, you know, he, he was pretty skinny, but he was super skilled, 
Uh, he could really shoot, could really handle it. He had this almost unguardable spin move and just <laughs> could, could score at will. I mean, really, it was just – and so, again, you know, sometimes, you know, people say, well, what's the difference between D3 and D2 and D1? And a lot of times it's just the physicality, especially when they're 18. And some yeah. guys end up developing later than others. But there, there are guys who are playing the NESCAC and starting the NESCAC who I have no doubt could – play and start it for a lot of the Ivy League schools and, sure. and Patriot League schools but uh, for whatever reason at the time you know maybe they were injured or maybe they weren't playing with the right AU team or or maybe they just felt you know whatever school they chose was the better academic fit right and and, uh, and maybe some guys wanted to play early things like that so um, so yeah Lucas and John were, were really special as you know we, we brought in seven guys in, in my two years there but um, again I just think Bowden's Academic reputation, uh, Coach Gilbride was tremendous. Uh, the NESCAC's reputation, um, a lot of times we were able to recruit kids who, again, could have played D2 or, or even low D1. So after two years at Bowdoin, you joined Dartmouth in the Ivy League as their director of basketball operations. Just what were some of the similarities and differences that you noticed between Ivy League basketball and NESCAC basketball? So the similarities, again, I would go back to the skill piece. Like, I think if you were to take the five best shooters in the NESCAC and the five best shooters in the Ivy League and you did a three-point contest, like, I don't know who would win. Okay. Like, there are so many skilled guys at both levels. Um, you know, I'd say the Ivy League guys are just a little bit taller and a little bit more athletic. But, uh, again, the, the skill is... I would say, and again, just coaching at Dartmouth and coaching at Bowdoin, I think is very, very similar. And, um, you know, again, being at the Division One level, you just have more resources in terms of recruiting and staffing, and uh, you travel a little differently. NESCAC, yeah. it's pretty much all bus trips. And yep. with the Ivy League, you know, it's bus trips, but then you're flying to other, other uh, locations. Gotcha. So um, I would say resources are, are probably the biggest difference. And as, as you mentioned when, when describing uh, Lucas Hausman, there's, there's just some guys who at 17, 18 years old may have flown under the radar of the big-time programs, not saying they weren't skilled enough, but, but for various reasons, uh, guys fall, uh, fall below the radar. And one of those guys is friend of the podcast, uh, Duncan Robinson. He's uh, played one year at Williams College in the NESCAC, then uh, had an awesome year, transfers to Michigan, and after going undrafted, he's now a starter in the NBA for the Miami Heat. He's from New Hampshire and played a prep year at Phillips Exeter Academy, which is also uh, in New Hampshire during uh, your time at Dartmouth. Just was there any buzz about him and, and his game uh, during that time while you were in New Hampshire? Yeah, so, and he is, his story is so unique. And I, honestly, you know, there, when I was at Bowdoin, um, saw him play once and he was still at Governor's Academy, so this was before he went to Exeter, and he was playing with the AU program, Middlesex Magic, mm-hmm. uh, which is a, a really strong program in New England. And you know, even at that point, he, he had no Division One offers, and he had some NESCACs recruiting him, but it wasn't like it wasn't like every NESCAC was even recruiting him at this point. <laughs> and then, and then, you know, you fast forward. So I loved Bowdoin. I actually went to Dartmouth. I was only there for a year, mm-hmm. and. Again, at this point, he had transferred, or he had graduated from Governors, I think, and then now he was at Phillips Exeter, so in our state, and head coach at Phillips Exeter is a guy named Jay Tilton, who actually used to coach at Dartmouth. And again, at this point, he still had no Division One offers, and so every Ivy League school didn't recruit him, or, or maybe mildly recruited him. 
And so I, I love Dartmouth. I was only there for a year. And then, I, and then I went to Davidson and then he ended up committing early decision one to Williams college. Yeah. And so, so he goes to Williams and, you know, everyone knows the story. He's the, the D three freshman of the year and they go to the national title game and, uh, they, they, they literally lost at the buzzer in the national title game. Yep. to I think UW whitewater, but, but so then now his coach was actually a, a good friend of mine, Mike maker. He ended up leaving Williams to take the head job at Marist. And so now, uh, Kevin app comes in and, and I think Duncan's trying to decide, is he going to stay at Williams or what? And so now all of a sudden he has a bunch of division one offers and he ends up narrowing it down, um, to either staying at Williams going to Davidson, which yep. is where I was at now, or going to uh, Michigan. And so he came on as official to Davidson, and obviously he's someone we really wanted. And uh, he and his mom came on the visit and just super nice people and, um, you know, ultimately of choosing Michigan. Um, so I, I tell people all the time, I'm 0 for 3 on Duncan Robinson. <laughs> so, so, and now he's, uh, and a good friend of mine works for the Boston Celtics. Yeah. And I said, you know, you don't want me on your staff because he's not going to come to Boston and come <laughs> on your staff. So, but it, it's been amazing to see. And again, it's, it's a unique story, right? Yeah. Like I think, you know, some people say, well, Duncan did it, anyone can do it. It's like, well, and it's not to diminish anyone's dreams or, or hopes or anything, but it, it's just, it's one of those things, like even like again being at Davidson. Um, I was there after Steph Curry, but it's like that's it, it's those two guys. It, it, they're just unbelievable stories, right? And um, there, there's actually another Division three player out of our conference, um, Devin George, who played at Augsburg, and um, he was the. I, I think to this day he's still the only Division three player to ever be drafted in the first round. He was drafted by the Lakers, right? And he ended up he ended up winning three titles with Shaq and Kobe. And, you know, he, but, but he came into the league at six, two, he graduated at six, eight. Right? <laughs> and, and, and Duncan, I think came in, I think when he entered Williams, he might've been six, five and, you know, now he's six, seven, but, um, but again, it, it's just a story of persistence and, and he really bet on himself, you know, right, he, he right. took that year at Exeter and then he went to Williams and had an unbelievable year. And then he bet on himself again and, transferred to Michigan, which some people thought that might've been too high. And, and I think he scored a thousand points in three yep, years. He did. Okay. So, and then he bet on himself again, you know, instead of going overseas, it would have been easy to probably take a, cause a lot of times if you're debating between the G league and overseas, you can actually get paid more uh, in Europe. And he decided to play in the G league. And, and now he's, I mean, the guy was in the NBA, um, three-point contest this year and and it's going to be a hot commodity for years so for sure um, it's really cool when you see stories like that and and inspires other guys you know as as time goes on 100 percent. you know maybe you could you could be a Duncan Robinson so and there was another player in your league uh Freddie Gillespie started at uh Carleton College didn't really play his freshman year was a second team all league guys his sophomore year he bets on himself transfers to Baylor and then he had just an awesome uh two seasons down at Baylor in the Big 12 uh, so it is possible. It's rare, but but it is possible. So as as you mentioned, after one year at Dartmouth, you, you go down to North Carolina for and join the staff as Davidson in the same role as director of basketball operations. So many jobs in, in various fields may have the same title, but they all come with different quirks and, and their own different responsibilities uh, based on the organization that, that they're a part of. Just what were some of the similarities or differences in being the director of basketball op- operations at Davidson compared to at Dartmouth? Well, I would say that, at, you know, at Dartmouth, we were certainly in the building stages of a program. 
And um, the, the coach I worked for, Paul Cormier, I, I love working with him. And it was actually his second time at Dartmouth. He was in the NBA for maybe almost 15 years uh, in between the first time he coached at Dartmouth and the second time. And uh, we, we were just in the building stages. So we were, you know, towards the bottom of the league and we, we were playing a lot of freshmen. Uh, going to Davidson, it was a, a fully established program. And Coach McKillop had, my first year there was his 25th year there. And, you know, had, had dominated the Southern Conference for so many years. Yeah. And so I think, again, there were a lot of similarities with the job, but um, just in terms of where our programs were. And uh, for me, I, you know, I was excited to, to get a chance to, you know, when I, when I was watching my senior year, 2008, when I graduated from McAllister was the year that, that Davidson, you know, Steph uh, was a sophomore and yep. they went to the Elite Eight and, and had that amazing run. And I remember watching that on TV, and that was in 2008. And then you fast forward, you know, five and a half years later, and now I'm, I'm getting a chance to org at Davidson. It, it was <laughs> unbelievable. And, and I think for me, and I think for a lot of coaches, you have to figure out, like, what, what do you want out of your experience? And I, I was never, you know, some guys want to be in the NBA or some want to be in high school or, or D1, D2, or D3. I've always just wanted to be at really strong schools because, again, I, you know, if I never coach an NBA player my entire career, I'm okay with that. But mm-hmm. I just I felt like, again, because of the experience I had at McAllister and, and being a, a true student first and an athlete second, um, I wanted to make sure as a coach, if I could, I'd get to work at institutions that in a lot of ways mirrored that. And so uh, coming to Davidson, it was, um, you know, I got to work with uh, Matt McKillop, who's coach's son, who was a tremendous player there. And. Uh, Will Regal and um, who's still there, Ryan Me, who's now the head coach of Vassar, and yeah. uh, Will Tony, who's actually now assistant at Dartmouth. So um, it, it was just a, it was a family down there, and, and it was really neat because I I was there for the for our last year in the Southern Conference, and then our first two years in the Atlantic Ten, mm-hmm. and so to, to be a part of that transition and um, help take us to a different level, uh, it was really a great experience. So as you mentioned, Coach McKillop is a legend in. And Division One college basketball, his his coaching tree has just grown more impressive as each year goes by. Obviously, Coach uh, Landry Kolsmalski played at Davidson, was a star at Davidson, coached there, has done incredible things with the Swarthmore program, as you mentioned. Ryan Me now now at Vassar, uh, the coach down at Emory was is a Davidson guy, and yes. and uh, yourself. Just what were some of the things that you learned from Coach McKillop uh, during your time working for him? Well, and, and just uh, so Jason Zimmerman is at Emory, yeah. and then uh, and then Tim Sweeney is actually at Con College yep. uh, in your in your league. So we we all have um, Davidson ties. But I would say the biggest thing was just uh, really planting your feet in the job you have and doing the best you can. And I think you know he's never sacrificed who he is, and he's had opportunities to leave for high major jobs, but he really believed. You know, and I don't know this for a fact, but there are, I think, 351 or 352 Division I programs in the country. Coach McKillop might be the only one. I would say on one hand, you could count the amount of head coaches that walk to every home game. (laughs) In Division Division I men's basketball, I don't know. It'd be interesting to figure out. Yeah, maybe, maybe Jeff. Good, maybe Jeff Goodman would know. He could probably send out a text and get all the answers. But how many head coaches walk to the home games? And so he lives like you know less than two blocks from campus, and, and it's amazing to 
for him to be at a school for that long, to have that success of winning. And it didn't start out that way. You know, I mean, he, he and uh, Landry at Selectmore give me a lot of uh, confidence because, you know, where their programs are today aren't where they were when they first got there. Right. And it took some time and you really have to plant your feet in and dig in and, and build. And it, you know, we live in a society where we, we expect a lot of quick fixes and we yep. expect everything to be lightning speed. And building a program can take four or five years to get it to where you really want. And so I think the biggest thing from him was just building it the way you want, treating people the right way, um, and just really, really buying into to where you are um, were, were a lot of things I learned. So after that, uh, so after those three seasons at uh, Davidson, you head over to Siena College as a assistant coach where you were for two seasons. And up to that point, you had spent uh, the last six years at the D1 level. What made you want to come back down to Division Three and and coach in the summer of 2018? So it, it was an interesting time where uh, the, the previous head coach, who, who was a, a great guy, ended up stepping down. And we actually, the head coach I worked for at Siena ended, ended up resigning. And so it was kind of a timing thing where Again, like, like I said earlier in our call, it, it was never a, uh, a Division One or bust mentality for me. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think aligning with schools that I believed in their mission, and w- whether that was D1, D2, or D3, that, that never really mattered. And the chance to, to be a head coach, to come back home, to be in my alma mater, uh, you know, again, it's, it's 20 minutes from where I grew up. Right. And uh, the program was down, to, to be very honest. So... I looked at that as an opportunity to say, hey, here's some, here's a program that there are, uh, the bones are really good of the structure, right? But they, we just kind of need some interior design work, maybe. Right. And we, we need just to, to change a few things here or there. And um, we have the, a really, really special thing. So um, all of those factors kind of played into to the decision to come back home. So one thing... Uh, coach for for anyone who who doesn't know who's listening that makes d3 basketball really unique is that uh coaches are only allowed to work with the players of their programs on the court during the actual season so there's no off-season workouts where in division one or two you have like eight hours a week i think in the fall in d3 basketball it's zero hours how did you go about establishing the relationships with the guys on the team uh coming in that first fall without having the benefit uh, of those on-court workouts. Yeah, that, that was probably the the biggest challenge for me going from Division One to Division Three is just the amount of access you're allowed to work with your guys, and, and that's something that, that honestly I do miss in Division One. But a lot of it is just getting to know them as people, right? Like I, I say all the time, like this this isn't rocket science what we're trying to do, yeah. and we have extremely bright guys on our team. We, we talked a lot about commitment level and, you know, you hear when you hear the C word from coaches, everyone says culture. Mm-hmm. And there was like this, you can go YouTube it. Like there was this video of all these coaches in their interviews and, and they kind of snapshot like the word culture. And it's like 30 coaches just saying that <laughs> word. And, and, I, and, and we get what they mean, you know? And, and, but to me, it's almost more than culture. It's like commitment level. And so to your point, in Division Three, uh, the men's basketball and women's basketball coaches are allowed a lot less time to work with them on the court. So then how committed are they to improving when we're not with them? And and so we went from, a, honestly, a, a roster size. My first year at our first team meeting, we had 
like around 25 guys. Uh, by the time our first game started, we had 21 players. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the time the season ended, we were down to 19. And then I just finished my second year, but my second season, we were down to 13. So our roster got smaller, but our commitment level rose. And that created an environment where the expectations started to change. And I, I talked a lot about my experience and how much I enjoyed being a student at Mac and being an athlete. And that's why I came back home. And so I wanted them to have, you know, I had a great experience. I want them to have an even better experience, but I can't be with them as much as I'd like. So it's going to be up to them to really um, take that ownership. So, yeah, we just talked a lot about that and uh, guys really bought in. And I feel like now going into year three, um, we're at a place now where we, we actually have seven recruits coming in plus our eight returners. So now we'll be at 15 guys who, um, are really all on the same page. So mm-hmm. um, it's, it's been certainly not the easiest of, of processes, right. but uh, certainly well worth it. And I'm um, just really excited for, for this next year. You mentioned that word commitment level, and, and I've heard you talk about this uh, before, Coach, but you, you really love talking about uh, trying to get the guys who are committed as much and increasing commitment level. But just as, as a coach, what are you looking for in your players that they are buying into that commitment level uh, you are seeking? What are the signs that, that you look for as, you know, you, you may not be saying that you want to build a culture uh, per, per se, but, but, but you definitely want to have a, a commitment level uh, for the guys of your program. Just, just what are the signs that they are buying into what you are trying to build? Yeah, and let, let me be clear. I'm not like... Um I'm not like against the word culture per se. I'm uh-huh. just saying sometimes I think it's so overused that it's totally it's not clear as to what, what that means. Totally so, agree. Yeah. I think a, a lot of it has to do with their time uh, in the weight room. And even I've, um, there was actually a, a player I recruited who chose another school in our league and which is fine. Again, there's no, I never get mad about that. You know, I, I may be a little sad for like a night. It's kind of like if we win a game, I enjoy it that night, and then the mm-hmm. next morning it's over. If we lose a game, I feel bad about that night. Next morning it's over. It's the same thing with recruiting. But we, we played them this year, and, you know, we kind of talked before the game. And he's like, man, he's like, what are you guys doing in the weight room? Like, all your guys just look different. And and that's, to me, that's commitment level when not only I'm noticing that, but other opponents are like, wow, your right. guys just look different. And I would say it's uh, my guys, if they're, they're probably not listening now, but – you know, I talk a lot about keeping the locker room clean and how that's a, it's like, well, how does that translate to wins or losses? But if we can't keep the locker room clean, like how does that, how can I expect you to take care of the ball? How can I expect you to take great shots? How can I expect you to talk on D? Um, How can I expect you to show up on time when we can't do the simplest thing, like keeping the locker room clean? So a lot of that is, um, I have to live that. And like, if you were to walk in my office, it's spotless, (laughs) freak, but but I just think like all of these little things start to add up. And so um, it's, you know, making a correction when we need to and, and then moving on. It's never to demean them or never to put them down, but to actually correct them because we want them to be better. For sure. And so, again, it's the weight room. It's the athletic training suite. It's film. It's getting shots up on the gun. It's getting shots up with a teammate. It's eating healthy. It's getting sleep. It's like all of these things that, Maybe I'm not with them to track every single day, but again, if we want to be the team and, and have the program, I know we, we can, then th- they just have to do it. Yeah. I, and it's shown and it's shown. Yeah. I, 
I, I definitely think, you know, obviously Division Three, the coaches can't hold your hand the whole time. There are a lot of players holding players responsible. And one of my favorite uh, memories from my time at college of, of playing was my sophomore year. Uh, we had we had one guy on the team who uh, over winter break, you know, there's limited food uh, options at the dining hall. And, you know, I guess he got in a habit of, of having some French fries. And so uh, one of my buddies my, in my class made a joke of like, seriously, French fries again, just a kind of way to just, you know, try to encourage him to go over to the salad bar. So that's just like kind of like a fun teammate uh, reminder without like, you know, being too mean about it. But uh you know, for, for the listeners who don't know, Coach, the MIAC has two national powers, true national contenders year in, year out in St. John's and St. Thomas. What is it like in those weeks when you're getting ready to play either St. John's or St. Thomas where, where currently the last two seasons the, the odds were, were stacked against you? Yeah, we look at it as a great challenge. You know, we, we play everyone in our league twice, and so I think – um, whereas, you know, the NESCAC, you play everyone once yep. and then you're able to schedule a lot more non-conference games, but just because of, you know, in the Northeast, there are so many more division threes than there are in the Midwest and West coast. So, um, a lot of times schools and conferences in our region play each other twice. And so their overall record may not look as good because schools are beating up on each other in league, mm-hmm. but they're, they're still extremely competitive. And, and like you said, St. John's and St. Thomas were both. Uh, I think they finished top, for sure, top five, might even yep. top four um, in, in the final poll uh, behind Swarthmore and, and maybe one other. But um, I, yeah, we looked as a great challenge. I mean, at the end of the day, there, there was no pressure to play either of those schools. And um, it, it'll be interesting enough, actually, next season, uh, my, my current assistant, uh, my top assistant, Connor, went to St. Thomas. He played there. Okay. And then we recently hired a, another assistant, Sam Johnson who went to St. John's. And so I told okay. both of them, we better be both of them next year. You guys <laughs> both went to, we got, we got all their secrets now. So. But, but yeah, no, again, it's like you, you, you want to play against the best. Right. That's how you kind of measure yourself. And, um, you know, we went from, you know, pre, I think this year we were picked dead last, you know, there's 11 teams in our league and, mm. and you know, we finished ninth, which right. is, is not exactly where we want to be, but it's, it's improvement. And in our conference, the top six teams make the playoffs and, and we haven't, uh, as a program, the last time we made it was 2004. And, and I think we'll, we'll be in great position to, to have a chance to make it this year. So, you, you know, I think you have to judge success on where you've been and, mm-hmm. and where your team's been. Right. And so it, it's not necessarily, of course, we'd, we'd love to be St. John's, St. Thomas. We, you know, you want to beat everybody. But um, at the end of the day, we have to compare ourselves. It's, it's almost like golf, right? Like you're, right. you're actually sco- you're kind of playing against the course and you're playing against yourself. Right. And, and so, um, yeah, I, I think, again, like now with, with St. Thomas, this is actually the last year they're going to be in our conference. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're leaving their – it's not official yet, but they're most likely going to the Summit League, uh, which yeah. is a Division One conference. And so they'll leave after this season. And then St. Scholastica, which is currently in the UMAC, which is another D3 league in Minnesota, um, St. Scholastica will be leaving the UMAC and joining us the following year so. Yeah, for um, so we so we so we have we guarantee we have two guaranteed opportunities to beat St. Thomas coming up. So we got to yeah. take advantage of those while, while they're still here. Yeah, and for anyone who doesn't know that 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 story, St. Thomas is one of the preeminent Division three football powers in the country, and their enrollment uh, size and just the size of the university and the resources that they commit to sports like football 
uh, it's just way greater than uh, a lot of other Division three schools and, and a lot of the schools within the the Mayak conference. So uh, it makes sense that you know their football program is so big and just they just don't fit as much uh, with it with just the the type of school enrollment size and and everything uh, to stay in the Mayak. So wish them the best of luck because their football team is legit. Uh, they have a really good basketball, but their football team is insanely good. So uh, it'll be fun to watch them in Division One. Uh, but coach, just one important distinction I think that uh, what separates some good athletes versus you know the, the great athletes is not just physical toughness, but mental toughness as well. And we saw in the ESPN's The Last Dance how physically tough that era was in the 80s or 90s. And when now I personally don't think that that era of basketball is that comparable to, to this one. What jumped out to me was not just like the physical toughness of a guy like Michael Jordan, but his mental toughness. And you can do things to improve physical toughness, like you can lift weights and, and get stronger. But just how are you as a coach helping your guys uh, improve uh, their mentalities or their mental toughness? So I'm glad you brought up the last dance because even even before the last dance came out, I was talking with our team this year about how, you know, when Jordan, everyone talks about Jordan as being the greatest ever and, you know, he won six titles and never lost in the final. He actually never went, they never went to a game seven yeah. uh, while he was with the Bulls um, in the finals. But people, and the last dance kind of brought that up, but, but people tend to forget that, you know, when he first entered the league, he was scoring all these points, but they weren't really winning. And, you know, they, they, they he scored 63 against the Celtics. And then uh, in three straight years, they lost to the Pistons. So the first year they lost in five, then they lost in six, then they lost in seven. And then the fourth year, which is the, the 90, 91 season, they ended up sweeping the Pistons. And then they had, they showed that whole thing of, you know, Isaiah and Bill Ambeer and all those guys kind of just walking by the bench. Yeah. But, but it took the Bulls four years of losing to the Pistons to finally break through or three years, they broke through year four. And so with our guys, you know, and I said this even before this last names came out, um, you know, we, again, I, and I said this earlier today, we just, we live in this society where we expect everything to happen so quickly. Mm-hmm. And, and really three or four years is like a snap of the fingers. Like I'm thinking about now, I'm like, geez, I'm entering my third year and it feels yeah. like I was hired yesterday. Right. Right. Know? And, and so getting them to understand that, you know, we may not, you know, like our, our current seniors who, who, who are rising seniors now, they, you know, they won three games their freshman year, seven games their sophomore year, eight games their junior year. And I'm not going to put a ceiling on their senior year, but it's oh. going to be a great year. And, and that, that's kind of four years. But, um, but things just don't happen as fast as oftentimes we want them to. And so to the, the mental toughness piece is just getting them to understand that um, – as you know, you hear the cliche of like win the day or go one and zero each game or whatever. Yeah. Just, just kind of like do the best you can today and appreciate. Like, like everyone likes to go out and shoot, and everyone likes to go. It's fun to go shoot and get on the gun and things like that. But maybe you don't want to do squats, or maybe you don't want to do lunges, or maybe you don't want to do sprints or whatever. And so, just almost kind of like embracing the things you don't want to do, mm-hmm. and knowing that that's going to help you. Like today is what, June 8th or 9th? Yeah. Um, June 8th. So, you know, our first game is November 6th. So we're, we're months and months away with that. But, like, our goal is to win November 6th. But really, you got to win June 8th. And then you get to the 9th and then the 10th and then so on. And that's just something that just as much as you have to keep working on your physicality and, and your physical toughness, you have to work on your mental fortitude and your yeah. your ability just to focus and, 
and try to try to win this day. So um, it, it's an ongoing challenge, but that's our challenge as coaches is to is to get is to not only recruit guys who have those things, but um, also help develop maybe guys who who are, are terrific players, but maybe they're not as developed in, in other ways. One thing I noticed, Coach, when I was researching this is that you not only have two full-time assistants on your staff, but you also have three student managers. Just what is it like uh, for you to have that type of student involvement with the team, given that McAllister is such a small uh, school? So, you know, um, a coach I used to work for, he told me three things. He said, you have to recruit, you have to coach, and you have to promote the program. And the third piece in the program is really big. So not just amongst your players, not just amongst the student body, but uh, really across the Twin Cities and even the country and creating excitement around it. Like this is this is something new. You know, I and I've said this before and I, I tell this to recruits. We've never uh, McAllister men's basketball has never made the NCAA tournament. Like, like in the history of the college, zero. We, we've made NAI tournaments. We used to be NAI like in mm-hmm. the 70s and 80s, but we've never made the NCAA tournament. And that excites me because we're going to get to be the first team to do that whenever that happens. And so my challenge to recruits, to our current players, uh, to our student managers is like, how can you help us get there? But like, how, how fun is that going to be once we do that? Yeah. And so would you, would you rather go somewhere where it's already been done or would you rather be the first to do it? And so there is no right or wrong answer, but I want young men and young women. We actually have one uh, student manager who's a, a, a woman, um, and our director of sports medicine is a woman. But um, we want people who want to help us do things that have never happened before. And so you create an environment where they feel valued, where they have input, where they have a voice, and where they can help us build. And, again, that may not be for everybody, and, and McAllister's not for everybody, and that's mm-hmm. okay. But when we find those people who are really – on board with that it's just it just makes the ride that much more fun so um so yeah we like even if you go on our website you know they used to be student managers and now we have uh, like a student video coordinator yeah. student director of player development student director of marketing and student director of basketball operations so um yeah the title's different but it, it also empowers them and it, it gives them uh, a little bit more to hold on to and a little bit more i don't want to call it work but just they're able to contribute more. Yeah. So, so the last question I have, Coach, before we get to the rapid fire ones to end the podcast this this one comes from our mailbag from a from one of our listeners at home. During the 2019 Final Four in, in Minneapolis, you organized a pretty legendary morning uh, pickup game at at McAllister. Just how did that game come about, and and who impressed you uh, the most on the court? Man, great question. So, yeah. I felt like this was a chance for me to showcase uh, not only McAllister, but again, I'm so proud of being from here, and it's been really tough to see what's been happening here the first first uh, these past couple of weeks. But um, but it is Minneapolis, St. Paul are a really beautiful place. I, I think it's a hidden gem in a lot of ways. The the winters oftentimes scare away a lot of people, and so mm-hmm. the both cities never get super big. But um, so yeah, you know, during the Final Four, it's a great opportunity for coaches to connect and, and meet other coaches and build new relationships and just kind of catch up with, with coaches that they see during the season. And I felt that, you know, a lot of times you'll, you'll meet at the convention or you'll meet at restaurants or bars and that's all fun. But again, we're all basketball coaches and a lot of us are former players. So right. 
I, I, I always thought, man, it'd be fun just to have like a pickup run and kind of, that's the beauty of social media. You know, it, it kind of started out as a word of mouth and then we're like, you know, what, let's just open up. Cause there, there might be some guys who, who maybe don't want to play, but just want to be around. And maybe there are some guys who have never been to McAllister. So they just want to see the campus, whatever. And so, yeah, we ended up having uh, over 50 coach. We actually had like our main gym has a main court, but two uh-huh. side courts. And then, and then our field house upstairs has four full courts. Oh wow! So we ended up having to move it. So we had two full courts downstairs and then we had three full courts upstairs <laughs> and it was, awesome. it was awesome. And it was fun. Who was the best player, man? Um, well, I'm going to just say, cause it's going to be hard for me to say, but a guy that I, I used to coach, uh, Brian Sullivan, okay. who is now coaching at Davidson college. But, um, but he, I saw him play a couple times there and, and a couple of people were like, man, who is that? You know, cause it, cause I also ask people to, to wear their school shirts. Mm-hmm. So there, there was an assistant from Princeton, uh, Jonathan, who was really good. And yeah, there were a lot of fun players. You know, my, my biggest thing, I wanted two things to happen. I wanted a, I wanted people to make connections, either new connections or, or re, rekindle and B, probably most importantly, I didn't want anyone to get hurt. Right. Because really <laughs> the last thing I need are three coaches to end up with ACL tears. Yeah. A couple guys end up with hamstrings. And so, um, so I think we accomplished A and B. So. Right. That's, that's awesome, Coach. And yeah, that, that was always my favorite part about uh, all the summer camps. In the summer was seeing all different uh, polos and T-shirts that each team and, and each program had because that was the identifier of these guys was just by the giant uh, logo on their, on their chest. So, Coach, I appreciate uh, all the time. I have five rapid-fire questions uh, to end the podcast. I love it, man. Let's, let's hear them. Number one, do you have any pregame superstitions? Um, I usually write out, I don't know if it's a superstition, but I usually just kind of write out, and, and most coaches do this, but like certain plays, we're going to run that game. Okay. Um, I just have this like little note card and uh, nothing crazy. I don't like put my left sock on first. <laughs> I don't have like a, a lucky tie or anything like that. But I would just say I do always before the game, I, when I'm sitting uh, just in my office, I, I kind of write down some notes. So. Okay. What's your favorite drill as a coach? Favorite drill. Um, I love, we, we play this, it's, it's more of a shooting game, but it's called 21 where we have, um, you can either take a layup. So like you and I are on a team, we're playing against everyone else. And so I can take either a layup, which is one, an elbow shot, which is two or a three, which is three. Mm-hmm. And then I only get one shot. Then I get my rebound. I kick it out to you. And then you can do the same okay. first team to 21 wins. So, um, I love that game because most guys either only take layups or threes. It's kind of, it's rare that <laughs> someone takes a two, which is interesting. And then uh, I like eleven man fast breaks. So, okay, um, those are probably the two. Do you ever, as you mentioned, just just from your your pickup game, do you ever uh, suit up with the guys or, or just play with them and, and show them that uh, coach still uh, still has some game left? <laughs> Yeah, like some some guys. Will, I, I actually did this January, like during. We don't have like a full J term, but okay. we had we only had thirteen guys on our roster this year, and and so th- there was a, a time in January where one of our we actually have a player on our team from Dubai, and so because he had to fly, it's like a twenty four hour flight <laughs> yeah. like, back to Dubai. So we gave him a couple extra days just to kind of you know just so he'd have to get back right away. And then one of our other guy was hurt, so then I ended up jumping into a couple drills. So that's awesome. So some of the players are like, man, you still got it. <laughs> it, ne- it never left. It never left. So, 
what was one challenge of being a head coach that you did not expect or anticipate? I would say off the court, just the the amount of people, especially on, on McAllister's campus. The, I, I think the beauty of McAllister's, you know, we are a smaller school. We, we only have 2,100 students. Um, we're, we're a smaller school in a big city, which it presents some, some pretty unique opportunities. And because we're a smaller school, uh, people, you know, if someone in admissions needs someone from athletic, needs something from athletics, they might reach out to me or someone from residential life or mm-hmm. from civic engagement center or admissions or whatever advancement. And so I think just the, and part of it's my own fault cause I offer to do it but <laughs> at, t- at times I, I get pulled in different directions and that's something that a head coach and, and most head coaches have to deal with that assistant coaches just don't. Right. So. Lastly, if you could change one rule about college basketball, what would you change? One rule. Uh, no coaches box. No, I'm just kidding. Well, <laughs> um, I would say I got one technical this year because I came out of the coaches box. But, um, well, you know, Antoine Walker, I'm, I'm wearing a Celtics shirt right now. Okay. And and uh, a friend of mine works with uh, David Lewin. He's the director of scouting for the Boston Celtics. He's a McAllister grad. And when Antoine Walker's playing for the Celtics, they asked him, like, why do you take so many threes? And he said, because there are no fours. <laughs> so so may, maybe adding a four-point line here for, okay. uh, for Steph and for uh, Trey Young and for some of our, our smaller guys who maybe not are as athletically gifted but are very skilled. So Okay. I, wow, I, I haven't heard that one uh, yet. So, well, 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 Coach, I appreciate uh, all the time uh, today. As usual, on the double-double, we give the last word to the coaches and the guests. So do you have anything you want to say to the great people of uh, St. Paul, Minnesota? Yeah, I would. well, first of all, David, just thanks for having me, and I really appreciate you doing this because you're, you're giving a voice to a lot of coaches. And, th- again, there are so many great coaches around the country from NBA down to middle school mm-hmm. and – um, and I just, I really appreciate that, but For sure. no, I just, I, I really enjoyed this and just keep doing exactly what you're doing. And I think as coaches, uh, as players, um, we all have a voice and, and we've got to use it. Um, if, if we haven't learned that before, I think these past two weeks has taught us that, um, we have to stand up for what's right. And we've got to try to, whether that's, you know, via voting or whether that's donating money or donating your time, but, uh, we're more than just coaches and we're more than just basketball players. So For just sure. using our platform as best we can. Uh, and as you, you're doing right now with your podcast, I, I think it's tremendous. So, uh, so thanks for that. For sure. Thanks coach. Thank you. Have a great one. Bye. That'll do it for this episode of the double double. If you like this podcast, you could find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast and you could subscribe, rate and review five stars. We much, much appreciated. You can also find us on Twitter at DBL underscore DBL podcast. We'll be back later this week. Until then, take care and make it a great day.